1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
3: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: Julie, name an evil robot. (laughs) Okay, you're just laughing. Come on.
3: I'm sorry, I don't know. First one that
1: comes to mind. I don't
3: have... You see the brain today that I'm wearing. Uh,
1: The brain that you're wearing? (laughs) Yeah,
3: you see the model.
1: Yeah, okay. It's a weird hat, for sure. But no, like evil robots. Say in film.
3: In film. Okay, uh, well, I guess you could say the Terminator, but he wasn't... Really, a robot?
1: Well, yeah, well. I mean, yeah, underneath the fake skin, he was but a you robot. Could, you
3: could say Arnold Schwarzenegger there.
1: Okay. Well, uh, let's roll with the Terminator <laughs> thing. All right. So he's he's a machine. Not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, well, no, because he is probably not a robot. Oh, okay. But but yeah, the Terminator. There's a classic example. Evil robot, right? Yeah. Though even in this case, it's the the Terminator is just programmed to perform a function. And uh, in the first movie, that function is quote unquote evil. And in the second film, he's programmed to do something good. Yes. Yeah.
3: And so I think that's the interesting thing that we've been talking about when we've been talking to Dr. Ronald Arkin at uh, Georgia Tech. And he, of course, is the the man, he and his um, research assistants uh, who are responsible for what they're calling in the media, the Decepticon, <laughs> which sounds really, you know, brooding and scary. But it's basically robots that have had deception programmed in them so they can deceive other robots and they can deceive other people. Mm-hmm. But turns out that they're actually working on different emotions with robots, uh, just so that, like, for instance, like with the Terminator, that they might be able to learn empathy or something like guilt oh. that would help them operate out on the battlefield.
1: It's like there's probably a joke there about um, some sort of like faith-based robotics program. Like well, you know, cuz on the surface of it, why would you want to make a robot feel guilty? It's like these these bots have it too good, you to know, install some guilt in them make them feel bad for a change
3: because we have found out that guilt actually helps us to behave in a way that's more altruistic right oh, okay so we're going to actually listen to Dr. Arkin talk about this a little bit
4: well let's let's talk about emotions and okay. we do I've worked in emotions for decades actually in robot motions uh, I worked on Sony and iBO mm-hmm. uh, the small robot dog uh, Curio they're humanoid we just finished a project with Samsung. Uh, And Lily Moshkina, uh, my student, just successfully uh, defended her dissertation yesterday on uh, time-varying affective models of behavior, a complete uh, span of affect, including traits, attitudes, moods, and emotions. Uh, We'd like to think it's the most uh, complete model of emotion for any robotic system ever uh, to date. Uh, It's like a palette. You can paint wonderful emotion and affective portraits uh, that can interact with human beings. But the real question is does emotion belong in the battlefield? And what value does it bring? What value does emotion bring uh, to the battlefield? Uh, Some could argue that fear would be a useful one uh, in terms of self-preservation, but anger and frustration and many of the others uh, seem to uh, uh, tend to cloud judgment uh, in human beings and lead them uh, towards uh, criminal acts, uh, That's what we'd like to engineer out of the battlefield, uh, if we potentially could. Now, in some of my work, I did include one of the emotions. Uh, There are moral emotions, which include empathy and compassion and the like as well, too. One could argue that those emotions are already legislated into the Geneva Conventions. So, to some extent, if you adhere to that, you are being empathetic. Uh, you're You're understanding the distinction between a civilian. You're making sure that you're not... Uh, applying unnecessary force in different sets of circumstances. You're making sure that when you kill someone, it is done in a way which is not considered uncivilized. Uh, so, in that sense, we don't have to incorporate that motion directly into the robot. If it follows those uh, those rules, it potentially can. But what we did incorporate is a different moral motion, which was guilt. Uh, interestingly enough. Hmm. Uh, we use guilt uh, as a mechanism by which uh, the system could reduce the level of force it uses if it doesn't fully understand it. So let me give an example. Um, one of the things that's done uh, prior to the deployment of a weapon uh, is a battle damage estimate. So if you were going to drop a bomb in a particular area, you would have to have an estimate. This is related to proportionality yes. among other things. Uh, you would drop this weapon and you would expect such and such to occur. Uh, Afterwards, you do a battle damage assessment. Um, So suppose, for example, an autonomous system, uh, say an intelligent Reaper or something like that, the uh, unmanned aerial vehicles they're using now, which are under human control at this point in time, uh, made a decision uh, that it was going to drop a weapon. It did a battle damage assessment, it calculated the collateral damage that could occur, there's important things to understand which are disturbing to many people about the tolerance of civilian casualties and civilian deaths, which is actually a part of warfare. Uh, uh, but that, that dates back to the Middle Ages and the principle of double effect, uh, among other things. Uh, you're not a war criminal if you kill a civilian. You're a war criminal if you intentionally kill a civilian. So there's, there's fundamental differences. It's very hard to expect, inspect a human mind uh, to be able to tell. So
3: it's really interesting that he's talking about this model of emotions for a robotic system Um and, and even that whole point about how you don't necessarily need to program empathy and compassion if the robot can follow the rules of the Geneva Conventions. Right. right. So yeah. the protocols of it. So if if the robot follows that then you don't necessarily need to to get into the weeds with empathy at least in that case right if you've got a robot that is performing specific functions out on the battlefield um but I wanted to look a little bit more at that Smiths and Debock componential IRT model for guilt because this is the the cognitive model that they used for their robots they said okay let's look at a good model of guilt and how to program it so that model is actually, they studied the process of the structure of guilt, and this would, was administered to 270 school students, and the findings show that this kind of modeling is appropriate to investigate other emotions, right?
1: Wait, but they're, wait, you're using teenagers though?
3: Oh yeah, the, yeah, the guiltiest <laughs> humans on the planet, are you, I mean, yeah.
1: Alright, I'm, I'm just a little, I don't know about using teenagers to program our robots, you know? like...
3: Oh, right, right. Well, I mean, you know, they were not, you know, saying like, let's take their skill level at driving or, you know, their, their seat of judgment reasoning here and in, instilled in a robot. But I can
1: just imagine robots becoming very moody, um, <laughs> having crushes and, and, and just all sorts of ridiculous stuff.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, mean, you know what? I'm sure there's a market for that yeah. robot somewhere out there. Um, but there were five different components of guilt and my first one, I'll just kind of run through these quickly because okay. actually there's a, a really great paper on this. It's very long. So I'm sure that. You- Nobody wants to hear a uh, 20-page paper described here. So we'll just get to the meat of it, which is the first The first uh, condition is that guilt implies an appraisal in terms of responsibility. Okay. Okay. So, for example, guilt only appears in situations for which one feels personally responsible for it. Okay.
1: So that's like um, I was supposed to walk the dog and then the dog pooped on the living room floor. Yeah. That's kind of on me because I was supposed to walk the dog. That was my responsibility. I feel guilty.
3: Yeah. The poop's on you. Yeah. Uh, The second is that guilt implies an appraisal in terms of norm violation, a violation of a norm or the moral order precedes guilt.
1: Yeah. Dog poop does not go on the living room floor. Okay. That's a norm. That's a, that's a norm. And that norm has been defied.
3: Right. Uh, guilt implies this third one, a negative self-evaluation as a covert reaction of the type. I did something bad. Uh, so it's the negative self evaluation relates to an uh, act, and it's not a definite disapproval of the entire self.
1: Okay, so it's like, hey, I'm a pretty good guy, but man, I should have walked that dog so it didn't poop on the living room floor.
3: Yeah, so I mean, you're not going into a shame spiral, right? Right. So right. you're saying, gosh, yeah. I could, I could probably be better if I didn't do that.
1: Exactly. I'm yeah. not losing sleep over it. It's not a crisis. But yeah. I Note to, to, to self. I need to get better at walking that dog. Yes.
3: Gotcha.
1: This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors
4: of tomorrow.
3: Number four is, while feeling guilty, one's attention and inner thoughts are covert, ruminative, worrying reactions focused on the act much more than on the self.
1: I really hate that that dog pooped on the floor, and it's my doing, right? That, right. that we're looking at here?
3: Yeah, well, and I was also kind of thinking about Lady Macbeth mm. in, in the super crazy way. She's, okay. she's not a norm, obviously, of guilt, but out damn spot.
1: Right. She's obsessed with the blood on her hands, the imagined blood on her hands. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the – she's not doing a lot of introspective uh, work.
3: Right, right. Those, she's just yeah. turning it over in her brain yeah. over and over again. And then the fifth one is that guilt implies the emotivations and action tendencies related uh, to ourselves. So one is inclined to confess, to undo one's fault, and uh, try to right what, what was gone wrong with an apology.
1: Okay. I'm not sure how to relate that to the dog poop, though.
3: Well, I mean, I guess you could say, especially if this is this is based on teenagers, right? Like, sorry, mom. I, I will not do that again. I will take the dog out. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I guess that's the acknowledgement part. Okay. Right? So, the, these are that's the actual cognitive model that they used to then program the robots, which is pretty fascinating, right? Yeah. So, you see that play out. Obviously, this is an algorithms, so you know, it's a if if and then situation. Um, but nonetheless, here we are trying to create some sort of morality in robots
1: right even if it's if x then Y. yes if dog poop on carpet then sad
3: (laughs) exactly exactly um but it was really interesting because dr arkin was talking about this um and then he was talking about in, in a larger context we need to really be thinking about robots and our connection to them so it's not just okay we'll use them out in the battlefield but how do we connect to technology as a whole Uh, So he had a little bit to say about why we can't help but connect to technology, even though it's not another human. So let's hear that.
4: But the real key for us is I have been concerned uh, in robotics from the very beginning uh, with the behavior uh, of intelligent systems. And uh, these kinds of things affect behavior. Fortunately, now we have architectures where we can create and compose Uh, autonomously uh, robotic behavior so these systems can do things in the context of missions or in the context of your home uh, or whatever you like and in some cases emotions are very useful if you want a robot companion you would probably like it to be able to express emotions so you could entrain with it and feel that it's more uh, a part uh, of you remember the Tamaguchis that people used to have the little watches Mm -hmm. that uh, people would cry when they didn't feed them and they died and, uh, and all sorts of things yeah We have this propensity as human beings to uh, uh, create bonds to artifacts extremely easily. Uh, It's very natural. Cliff Nass studied this in uh, his book, The The Media Equation, uh, and uh, documented it very well, that even if we fully understand that this is an artifact, it doesn't matter. And what's interesting is that roboticists, and this begs many different other ethical questions, we can create these artifacts in ways that we can make you want them. Uh, same, you, you go to a movie, right? What are you watching? You're watching a bunch of dots on a screen. Uh, and you'll walk out there crying, laughing, if it's a good movie, and you'll have paid for the privilege uh, of doing that. And you're being manipulated uh, all the time. Your emotions are being manipulated. It's like a ride, right? Well, a robot could have that same capability, but it can follow you around, and it can be more a portion of your life on a daily basis. So that actually changes things uh, to some degree. This physical embodiment uh, actually uh, alters the equation in many people's minds so that there is an extra level of concern that we need to address as we move forward with this technology.
1: So again, it comes down to the fact that our, um, our emotions can be manipulated by anything.
3: Yeah. I loved it when he was talking about uh, movies. He was just saying, look, this is sort of pixelated light and yeah. you are crying, <laughs> you know, um, because we can't help but see ourselves in all those different situations. You know, I guess it's like the Rorschach uh, test of our existence. Yeah. It's you know?
1: like the uh, we I've mentioned before, the, the bit from Community where Jeff Winger points out that you give a pencil a name and then you snap it in yeah. half and then we feel sad. You know, it's yeah. like we can, we, we can just become emotionally attached to just about anything. Yeah,
3: we ascribe meaning to everything. Yeah. Um, and we've talked about Sherry Turkle before too. She's the psychologist who worked at MIT, uh, for many years She's and worked in with children and adults. Yeah, she, she uh, developed a crush on Cog, the lab <laughs> robot, and found herself wishing that she had more alone time with Cog in the sense that, you know, the other, her, uh, her coworkers were maybe bogarting some time with, with <laughs> Cog. Um, not that she wanted to get intimate with Cog.
1: We're making her sound crazier than she. You know,
3: no, is. no, she's actually she's, she's yeah. uh, has some really interesting things to say. She has a book out called Alone Together, um, and about how again we're connecting with technology and we're making the connection, but we're all doing it alone together. Um, but so you know, actually, Dr. Arkin brought her up as well because she was going to be talking at Georgia Tech uh, the week that we spoke to him. And then he also brought up the fact that he teaches robots ethics in terms of intimacy to his class and robots in robots and society. And of course, you know who came up during this oh, discussion. Oh, this would be
4: Roxy with three X's.
3: Well, hey, let's hear what Dr. Arkin has to say about Foxy Roxy.
4: In Lily's dissertation, which I was mentioning, uh, that she very successfully passed uh, yesterday, Uh, one of the studies we did lots of human robot interaction studies and one of those was having a robot in a search and rescue mission uh, uh, start when a sudden event occurs start to give commands to a human being to evacuate to get out of the room Uh, when we did it without the affective component there was very little compliance actually none Uh, when we added the affect people started moving when the robot told them to go uh, at at that case so very interesting dimensions Uh, and you don't even need that in many cases but the point is that once the more and more we understand human intelligence and human feelings and the more and more we put them into these systems the more prone we are to fall in love to care to whatever with these particular devices and that begs the next question which i'm talking about with my class this week as well too in robot ethics uh, is uh, uh, intimacy and how far you want to go what is socially acceptable? What is societally acceptable? Where are we going to draw the lines? And very, very, very few people are willing to broach that subject. It's it's very interesting. There is virtually no academic research whatsoever going in the intimate level, the deeper levels of human-robot interaction and robot sexuality. Uh, there are no funding agencies that I am aware of that would dare uh, to... Uh, uh, fund in that space uh you can imagine the repercussions that uh that could occur uh but there are people doing it
3: uh, i was just saying and yet i you know there's a market for it because they've already yeah it's, sell it's
4: exactly right it's kind of like what uh, uh the pornography industry is being mm-hmm. done in people's garages and warehouses and the like as well too and there was the so-called first uh sex robot uh, uh called roxy right. yes, yeah. Exactly.
3: Yeah. Uh
4: Oh, boy, that's a bad robot. I'm sorry. I wouldn't even call it uh, a robot as well, too. And the point is you can make claims about things which are completely unfounded because people don't understand uh, the, uh, the ways in which humans relate to these particular artifacts. And if you're abhorred uh, by the mere thought of that, that's okay. But then what are you going to do about it? I mean, are you going to uh, provide guidelines, restrictions, uh, regulations uh, for the conduct of research? Right now there are no such guidelines or restrictions, it's just uh, social pressure, as Lessig would uh, talk about uh, in this context. Um, But we may, uh, and I also have to blame uh, our own profession uh, for not coming up with much in the way of regulating the way in which we do things. It's still, uh, it was a real cowboy, cowgirl field when I first got started. now we have much more effective scientific measures for evaluating results, but we still haven't got to the uh, uh, bioethics community as well, too, in those aspects. Although we do, and I am a member, uh, a founding member of the uh, tech- IEEE Technical Committee on Roboethics, but it's getting stronger, people are understanding that we're succeeding. That's the scary thought. You see, that we're actually succeeding in making these kinds of artifacts, and the consequences of them uh, uh, we don't fully understand.
1: So Roxy, a bad robot.
3: Yeah, a bad robot.
1: <laughs> In Roxy's case, they're taking their, uh, sort of, well, less successful attempt at a healthcare robot and turning <laughs> it into a, uh, into a sex bot for, uh, to make a few, you know, uh, to, to, to generate a little more, uh, revenue flow. Uh, so to so, speak. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so the, the, so the issue's out there. We, we, we need to be thinking about it. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, I don't know if it means we need to found like a you know the Sexbot institute of uh, North America or what. But.
3: Right, right. And actually, I this isn't included in the in the audio, but I did ask him about whether or not these issues surrounding intimacy with robots are something that are slow going in the United States and are are, are more talked about in Europe, for instance. And mm-hmm. he said, well, you know, like a good scientist, I don't have any data so I can tell right. you that, but I can tell you that people started talking about it in Europe. Uh, far earlier than we are now talking about it in the United States. Um, and that there are all sorts of issues that they're talking about with robotics in terms of like, even like robotics spare parts. If you were to have, you know, say an exoskeleton arm, um, you know, who should get that arm? Who should have access to these enhancements essentially? Um, you know, and, and I said, oh, and that kind of makes me even think that there could be this black market created for some of this technology if we don't now start thinking about how we want to release it to the public or we want the the, the public at large using technology. Hmm. Um, and so when you talk about things like that, like a exoskeleton or uh, a robotic arm, then you're really talking more like people who might use it in terroristic acts, you know, or to, to bolster those sort of um, terroristic acts, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense.
1: Okay, but not like the building of a sex bot in their basement.
3: Well, that's, that's a concern too, but he was sort of saying this is all part and parcel that, that, you know, in, in Europe, some of these other considerations have been going on for a while. Um, the haves, the have-nots, who would have access to it, how would right. it be used, you know, what's, what's the best use of this technology? Um, and he also brought up another really interesting point. Uh, about, you know, really looking at the situation and trying to figure out, are we, are we being sensitive to it in the right ways? Are we really listening to all of the voices, um, that are out there, in- including neo-Luddites? Oh. Yeah. And it turns out that he actually has his class study Ted Kaczynski and, um, and some of his writings in terms of neo-Luddites and what they can learn as programmers uh, about the technology they're creating.
1: Uh, And, of course, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, Kaczynski was, of course, the Unabomber, uh, famous for the Unabomber Manifesto, which is another document that is is far too long to read in its entirety here. Yeah,
3: 35,000 words long. Yeah.
1: So I'm only going to read half of it. Um, No, I'm just (laughs) going to read a couple, well, just a brief excerpt from it here just to give you an idea in case you've never looked at it. Uh, It starts off like this. The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries, but they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world, to physical suffering as well, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. And it kind of goes on from there, and is, is kind of a... A downer about uh, about technology in the modern yeah. age and where it's headed, and it's it, it, it's just a very grim uh, view on how technology has changed life on Earth.
3: Yeah, and just just for uh, a little refresher for everybody, too. He actually sent sixteen mail bombs to various targets at universities and airlines um, in, a, in an attempt to get his message across. Yeah, um, so obviously, this was someone who is not. Uh, playing with full deck and was, had some interesting things to say, but was, uh, it was, well, psychotic. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, killed some people and it was, it was not a good thing. But, you know, again, that being said, it was interesting to, to look at the material, I assume, um, of a neo-Luddite and try to find points there points of consideration, at yeah. least.
1: I mean, it's like with politics. Even if you're more of a middle-of-the-line person, it pays to at least glance over and see what the, the extreme opinions on either side are thinking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: Well, let's hear what Dr. Orkin has to say about that.
4: There are people that uh, Bill Joy, in his article, uh, Why the Future Doesn't Need Us, which was published at the beginning of the millennia, I believe it was, uh, uh, in Wired, uh, talked about uh, GNR, Uh, genetics, nanotechnology, and robotics uh, due to self-replication as leading to the extinction of mankind. And the solution that he advocated is we should relinquish all research in that particular space. Uh, Most of us think that's a little premature, um, but if the threat is is as great uh, as uh, he argues, uh, that's something we should continue uh, to discuss. So uh, I just want to put that on the table uh, as well, and actually his inspiration uh, was the Unabomber uh, for much of his work as well, too, in terms of reading what Kaczynski uh, wrote, which actually uh, encouraged my class to take a look at as well, too. Uh, Not because I admire the man, far from it, uh, but rather a neo-Luddite has a perspective uh, that must be considered in terms of what we are potentially doing uh, as a society. And everyone abhors the means uh, that were used in that particular case. But nonetheless, uh, uh, we have to be aware of the technologies that we're creating, what the potential uh, effects are on our species and our civilization.
1: So, yeah, Unabomber's Manifesto as a uh, classroom text.
3: Yeah, yeah. And again, I think it's really interesting that he introduces that just so that his students would be aware of the issues. And it was making me think about confirmation bias and why we, you know, with our confirmation bias as humans, we can't help but continue to seek out supportive material uh, to, to help us come to the conclusion we want, the conclusions we'd like to come to in life. Right. We typically do that. We typically don't seek out stuff that, that makes us wrong about something. Right. Right. So actually uh, Leonard uh Milud now he is the author of The Drunkard's Walk. He has some interesting things to say about that um- in that book uh, about confirmation bias. And here's a quote. It says to make matters worse, not only do we preferentially seek evidence to confirm our pre- preconceived notions, but we also interpret ambiguous evidence in favor of our de- ideas. This can be a big problem because data are often ambiguous. So by ignoring some patterns and emphasizing others, our clever brains can reinforce their beliefs, even in the absence of convincing data. Yeah. So again, I think it's, it's very interesting that, uh, the class would look at that text well, and try a- to find something in it that that might have a kernel of truth to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like anytime you see somebody who say goes down the road of conspiracy theories, or, or, uh, or even just um, say one particular um, political uh, ideology or another. Mm-hmm. You know, if they start just consuming just one type of media about it, like all they read are books by this particular author and their um their comrades about a particular um you know movement. Or, or set of ideas, then that you know you are what you eat. You you sort of streamline your uh, your, your brain on that particular topic. So it uh, yeah, it, it pays to have a little wider viewpoint on things.
3: Yeah, yeah, food for thought there. If you are what you what you eat there. <laughs> um, want to thank Dr. Ronald Orkin again for taking the time to talk to us about robotics and ethics, and uh, we really appreciate it.
1: So hey, what do you think about? Uh, the future of social interaction with robots, about guilty robots or sexy robots. Let us know. We're on Twitter and Facebook, uh, both of those as Blow the Mind.
3: And you can always send your thoughts to Blow the Mind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The How Stuff Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for?
1: Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie.